Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Spooky Pants, the special Halloween edition of Smarty Pants, the podcast from the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. About 50 books are known to exist in the world that are allegedly bound in human skin. And it's entirely possible that there are many more. Believe it or not, these dark books were not made by Nazis, serial killers, or occultists. Nor were they churned out in a nightmare factory during the French Revolution. No, they were made mostly by doctors in the 19th century. How and why such books came to be is the subject of Dark Archives by rare book specialist and UCLA medical librarian Megan Rosenblum. She's one of the founders of the Anthropodermic Book Project, whose team has used a simple protein test called peptide mass fingerprinting to confirm that, as of October 2020, 18 books were bound in human skin. What sort of person would do this? How did they get away with it? And what does this ghoulish practice tell us about the clinical gaze? Megan Rosenblum joins us from LA to discuss the history of anthropodermic bibliopathy, the evolution of medical ethics and consent, and the controversial question of what we do now with the very human remains of this grim legacy. Thanks so much for talking to me about this morbid little book, Megan. Thank you. Thank you for reading my morbid little book. Of course. I never would have thought that something so niche and so dark as books found in human skin could fill a whole other book and traverse so many disciplines and questions. But maybe you could start by explaining how on earth you got into books bound in human skin. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny because there are all these little things, little interests that came together over time that it wasn't that I set out like, yes, this is my life's work. (laughs) I'm going to be human skin book lady. That wasn't really how it went. You know, I lived in Philadelphia and grew up near there. I encountered some books at the Mütter Museum. I'm in this room with all of these dead bodies, dead body parts and things like that, because the Mütter Museum is a medical kind of pathology museum. And then there's just this very plain looking row of brown books with their covers closed. And I'm like, why would you even show a book like that? It's not like a 
jeweled binding or, <laughs> or anything like that. These are pretty boring looking. And then I read the caption and it said they were books that were bound in human skin by doctors. And I was like, so shocked. And I never heard anything like that before. And I was like horrified, but also fascinated. It just kind of blew my mind that the, these things existed. But then I also thought they probably only exist at the mood or like so many other things that only exist there, right? And then I go to library school and I move out west and I'm taking a rare book cataloging course and I mentioned them and the professor was like, yeah, I think we have one of those. And I was like, what? And then started doing more with the history of medicine through rare books and then also you know, started working with the nascent death positive movement. I was thinking a lot about death and the way it shows up in library collections and stuff like that. And so I was kind of lightly researching maybe a different idea for a book. But when I would go to these places, I would ask if if there were any books bound in human skin, just because I knew that there were maybe two places that had them. And so many more places said that they thought they might have one or the campus tour guide says so. And they were like, not really sure, but it was a lot more than I had thought. And then in 2014, this news just kind of spread from Harvard that they had tested their three alleged human skin books. And two of them turned out to be fake and one turned out to be real. And it was this huge like, whoa, okay. So not only are there a lot of alleged books in different libraries, but for sure we knew one was definitely real. And I went to go talk to the chemist, Daniel Kirby, who did that test at Harvard. And then we started comparing notes about the ones that we heard about. And then uh, we ended up joining forces with the curator at the Mütter Museum because right at that same time, he was testing their books and found out that th that they had five real human skin books, which is the largest known collection in the world. And so we built a database. Okay, where, where can we identify individual books that have this alleged pedigree and can we get people to test them to find out if they're real? So we call that the Anthropodermic Book Project. And the science part of that is really fascinating because you learn something really brand new that wasn't able to be known about them before. And I think the fake ones are just as interesting as the real ones. That's really when the book started coming together as a book. I think in the very early, early times, I thought I might write a chapter about books bound in human skin and some other books have done something similar. But the most you can fit in a chapter like that is kind of like, well, there's this one and this one and this one. Isn't that creepy? The end. But it was telling us a way bigger story about the history of clinical medicine in particular, but then all the things of how we have to deal with them now and how we look at them now and what do we do with them now? Is this even legal? You know, as niche as it is, it definitely is. But it's also just about as interdisciplinary as it gets, you know? No kidding. And it all starts from this one little test. Can you explain how that test works and what librarians or collectors would send off to the Anthropodermic Book Project if they had one of these alleged books lying around? How would they know which book to test anyway? So normally, we only know these books are bound in human skin because they look exactly like any, they could be any color or like texture or whatever. So you would never know what they were unless someone at some point wrote inside bound in human skin. So it's usually the only tip off you get. And who wrote it? Was it the person who made it? Was it the person, was a librarian later? You know, um, at what point did they write this? 
So what you have to do using our method, which is called peptide mass fingerprinting or PMF, um, you take a teeny, itsy bitsy, tiniest little portion of the leather binding off of the book. So technically very minimally destructive. Like if if you, you can see it with your eye, it's plenty big enough to sample. And then you put it into this little plastic test tube with a lid on it. The leather bit is dissolved in a protein called trypsin. And then it's run through a machine called mass spectrometer. And what that machine is looking for is the proteins in the leather. So DNA degrades pretty quickly after death, except under certain favorable conditions. Degrades rapidly when it goes through a big destructive process like leather tanning but your collagen remains very stable for like thousands of years and so it's really easy to identify as a certain kind of animal based on a existing library of other pmf animals so kind of looks like a line graph sort of thing and you can very easily distinguish like okay that's from the that's a human and that's a sheep whatever but the human one it's interesting because we can only get down to the great ape family. So if if I ever found an alleged like chimpanzee bound book, you know, it'd be very interesting to to check. But they would look the same because we're so close to our other family members that there isn't enough evolutionary distance for us to have developed different protein markers. Whereas the Bovidae family makes up most of the other leather animals and they diverge so far back in evolutionary time that they actually do have distinct protein markers. So you can tell the difference between a cow or a goat or a sheep. So those are the most common ones. I mean, there's pig, but then there's also some, we tested some that were just bizarre, like horse, rabbit. It does happen uh, that you get a very unusual animal. But yeah, how how precise you can get, it depends. But it's really useful in that it's a very clean test that it can't be messed up by, you know, human touching a book. So if you DNA test something, you could get contamination on human handling and you could get a false positive. So like when a positive test comes back, how does that confirmation change a library's treatment of the book? How do they treat these objects in the collection to begin with, you know, before your test made it possible to know for sure that it was bound in human skin? You know, it really is very individual, not just down to the library, but also down to the people who are the co- stewards of the collections, right? So some folks, you know, a lot of the anthropodermic books have some conservation issues now because they got trotted out so much where people were like, okay, do you want to see this? (laughs) You know, and they would take it out to show people and they got taken out and handled so much more than your average antique book on the shelf that some of them are starting to wear quite a bit as as a result, right? So there's that. Uh, But other folks also think, oh, that's disgusting and, you know, don't really want to draw attention to it. People who work in the libraries might be afraid that they're a bad association for the library or that if people know about them, then either they'll ask for the book to be removed and that's a whole thing with libraries. Yeah, so it's really museums 
tend to have more experience in the museum world in dealing with human remains. But that's not something we're taught in library school. And that's not something that comes up very often. You find yourself a little out of your depth <laughs> when you're dealing with human remains suddenly in a library collection. That's something that you're, you're used to doing. So people really do have a pretty broad variety of opinions about the books and what should be done with them and whether they like to you know, showcase them as an unusual thing that they have or try to uh, downplay their existence. You know, some folks are so afraid that it will be real and they don't want to deal with the potential PR issue that they don't want to know at all. So, so there are some places that we've approached that decided that they rather just not, which I understand sort of on one level, but on the other side, if they find out it's fake, then they don't have to worry about anything. Right? It's like, okay, good. And sometimes it's kind of fun to show off a book. You know, now I'm at UCLA and we have a book at UCLA that was once believed to be bound in human skin. And before I moved to UCLA, we tested that book and it turned out to be fake. But the book says, you know, it's written inside that it's bound in human skin. The case, the protective case says human skin binding on it. But now we know more. And that's like, so it's kind of this fascinating object of a once believed human skin book. I think that's kind of cool too. Yeah. And so many of our stereotypes, I guess, about these books are just wrong. Like when I told my editor I was talking to you about human skin books, he said, isn't that a Nazi thing? And I mean, I was really surprised to learn that books that are supposedly from A, the Nazis, or B, the French Revolution, are usually not. They're fakes. Right. Yeah. So there are a number of books that have certain things in common and turn out not to be real. Um, the thing with the Nazi era books or the idea of it is that as of the writing of the book, we hadn't even found an alleged book from that era. So it wasn't like the French Revolution books where there are a bunch of alleged French Revolution books, but we've tested them and the ones that we've been able to test so far have not been real. The Nazi era books, there weren't even any books to test. So just very recently, I heard there might be an alleged example, but our team has a lot of questions about that book. So we're still kind of investigating and I don't know if we'll ever be able to test it. But other than that, I mean, literally not even one you could point to as a specimen, but our association with human skin book, you hear that you automatically think serial killer or Nazi. And there are really good reasons for us to jump to that association. There are all these different bits of history and also, you know, rumors and confusion and all these things that come together to, to make us have that immediate association. And so I take a chapter to really kind of tease that out and explore out all the different associations we have and why that would be. But the main reason is because there's this long-standing idea of uh, Nazi human skin lampshades. But even those are really, you know, a lot of the alleged lampshades that had existed at one point come up and get tested and turn out to not be human. It makes sense, though, right? I mean, you have this line in your book that 
It's easier to believe that objects of human skin are made by monsters like Nazis and serial killers, not the well-respected doctors, the likes of whom parents want their children to become someday. And I mean, you're right. The truth in the end turns out to be so much more disturbing, which is that it was doctors. Yeah, because we have this concept of doctors as being this sort of upper echelon healing arts and people who are, you know, called to this wonderful profession. And all of those things are true. And also this other thing. So the doctors who made them were primarily 19th century doctors. Uh, I haven't identified individual doctors with every single book, but very many of them. When you dig into the provenance, you find a doctor somewhere involved because they were generally the people that had access to this to the skin during dissection in order to be able to save it and then later on get it turned into a book binding. Um, so it's this really weird confluence of the sort of distanced clinical gaze that developed with clinical medicine and seeing people at a more minute sort of abstracted vantage point and seeing lots and lots of more patients and getting, you know, the more tools and scientific like view that you have on a person. And, you know, you need a certain amount of distance in order to be able to do your job because you can't get so involved with people's lives that you couldn't then like cut into the, I can't cut into Fred. So you do need some distance to be able to do the work, right? But if you can't find a line or check in with their humanity during this process, what happens if you let that mindset go astray? What's the worst that can happen? This is a, this is evidence of the worst that could happen. And how important it is for medical education to be, you know, scientific, but also humanities based and, and that the self-care of physicians and their needs being met help prevent things like physician burnout that can lead to depersonalization of their patients, you know? So it's really super important. So this is, so the story is not, it's a very dark area of history of medicine, but it's not like, oh, doctors are bad, (laughs) you know? It's more, this is, this is an example of a time when people multiple doctors well-respected in their fields did not see a problem with doing this. A lot of it has to do with, you know, class distinctions. A lot of it has to do with that clinical gaze situation. And also that they were becoming this sort of, you know, other class that collected art and books and things like that. But I find it really instructive to not only medical education today, but also to all of us about hey, these objects really tell us a story about these in-group, out-group situations, about the way we view people and the effects of that. And um, and they're like a cautionary tale, I would say. Right. And they paint a story of how much the ethics of medicine have changed over the years, too. I mean, I don't think today you could send out a piece of human skin to a tannery and say, I'd like this prepped for my copy of Grey's Anatomy, please. Like, whereas like 100 years ago, that actually happened repeatedly. Right. Yeah. So I think, yes, the ethics have changed, not only in medicine, but in our whole culture, where there are certain things that we expect and hold dear today, like consent, that just didn't exist. So that's the other thing. We are looking at this 
from a more evolved place along the trajectory and being horrified at the lack of consent, but that is not something people really thought about in that way. Uh, Now, there seems to be kind of a dual focus on evidence-based medicine, but then also the more humanistic kind of approach is helping this individual have what the best health looks like for them at every stage of their life, including the end, which is a way different (laughs) viewpoint, you know? It's good to have reminders of that viewpoint, too. And the deep irony of so many of the books that you write about is that we know a lot more about the people who made them rather than the people they're made of. It seems quite rare to know any of those details. Are there any books where we have a fuller picture of who it was? So the former librarian at the College of Physicians of Philadelphia Mütter Museum was able to identify a person that was made into three books in their collection. And so they were able to find out her name, Mary Lynch, and some general details about her in her medical case. But we don't know that much about her life or anything like that. Uh, but still, that's an unusual ability to identify a person. There are a lot of books in the UK that are allegedly human skin, and they're bound in executed prisoners. It's like their trial transcript is bound in their skin. It was used as a punishment for like the worst murderers. So that has a really interesting different kind of gravitas to it because it's it was meant to punish, right? Which is not an element of the other ones that I've come across. We do know who those, if they turn out to be real, we do know exactly who those people are, but also the stories that are bound in are of their murder trial. So from a certain vantage point, clearly, right? There's one person who it's at the Boston Athenaeum. I give him a whole chapter in my book. His name's George Walton, although he had multiple aliases, who he actually wanted his life story bound in his skin. And he dictated his life story to the prison warden while he was dying in prison. So he's the only one we actually hear from directly. He doesn't talk about why he chose to do this or anything like that. But he does tell his life story and his opinions about why he was in prison and, you know, all of his escapes and all of that stuff. So uh, his story is so fascinating because you get to hear it from him. And that's really extremely rare. Yeah. What's interesting about those examples is we know why they were made. Do we know any other motivations or can you guess at common threads based on the kinds of books that you found out were bound in human skin? I've seen some loose uh, trends. There are a number of books that are medical in nature. So that also lends towards that doctor bibliophile thing of I will take my most coveted book in my collection, either maybe the oldest book or the rarest book or my own book that I wrote and bind it in the skin of a indigent patient that I was dissecting and I just saved a piece and got it bound. Definitely a big thread. Then there are these more highfalutin kind of philosophical sort of ideas that those books are bound in. 
So you can kind of see how the same person might do something like that, right? Uh, so not medical, but more just general philosophical kind of thing. And then there are just the weird ones in the cases where someone did not, you know, actually write inside some sort of note besides just bound in human skin. Just a few people would write things like, you know, I thought it was fitting to bind this book on the soul in human clothing, something like that. Usually pretty vague. But the fake ones also have stuff, little notes like that in it too. So, The fake ones you talk about are really interesting too, especially because you've written that the ones that seem really gross, a la the book in the movie Hocus Pocus or even the bruised book that you tested that turned out to be rabbit, I mean, those are not real. Is there anything else that comes up in these notes that are talked in the books or or other aspects about them that raise your suspicions about their pedigree? Yeah. So I will give the caveat that I know it sounds like I'm hedging because I am. There have been times before where we have never found a book that is this kind of book that we hear about a lot. And then you get one and then it's real. So there you go. Like the sexy one, right? Yes. The sexy human skin book at the Grolier Club kind of blew my mind because I was like, okay, this isn't real. People ask me, yeah, are there any sexy human skin books? And I used to say no and ew. (laughs) But then lo and behold, there was one, a totally outlier kind of book. Now I'm getting more insight into what I believe to be the underground French market that, you know, aren't going to be in a public, you know, museum. And because of the legal reasons in France are remain very hidden, that I think that there are more and that the French ones might have, you know, certain other trends like maybe those sexy human skin books that we've had rumors of haven't actually arrived. Or who knows, maybe one of those French Revolution books is real. And then there would at least be one. But was there a factory churning out human skin books as the rumor goes in the French Revolution? Probably not, right? So I do retain a little bit of hedging, but I do see certain things. So the medieval Bibles, I don't think, are probably real. They're so far out. I've visited some of them, and they're beautiful, but they're also... You know, I love the one has a note in it from a librarian. So these are Bibles from like the 13th century in France. And there's a note from a librarian much later at the Sorbonne who's like, so-and-so thought this was human skin, but it's clearly the skin of a stillborn Irish lamb. Like kind of like, duh. (laughs) Like, how how would you not know that? I mean, I'm sure I'm inferring inflection there, but I love that. Um, But then there are the occult books. Anyone we've tested has turned out to be fake. And the other ones, which are really puzzling, are that the items that we have been able to test that make any sort of claim as to the ethnic background or race of a person that it was bound in the skin of a, you know, insert group, have all been fake. So those feel intentionally faked to me. Why would you write, like, it was this kind of person, and then it's not, it's not real. Um, And I just find that really 
weird. Because you can't tell also by looking at a human skin book, no matter what color it is, what the race of the person was. That's not, you know, all skin when tanned looks this like lightish brown pinky color, depending on the tannin that is used. And then it can be dyed any color under the sun. Why would you fake a book like that? I mean, obviously we can't know for sure why without a smoking gun note. And even that could be a a lie. But why? Yeah, to the extent that you can try to infer motivation, I would say it was probably financial um, because the rarer the binding, the more expensive and, you know, scarce it would be and appealing to certain kinds of collectors of unusual materials. But I also think that a lot of the fakes were actually not intending to deceive that at some point you know if a story was tied to something or it looked a certain way or whatever that at some point along its life someone then wrote down that part of the story to differentiate it in some way because you can't tell by looking at it so I think there may have been some librarians along the line who like wrote inside trying to do due diligence and they didn't have a way of cooperating one way or another so it might not have been an intentional deception but the one at Notre Dame was like the closest that I found that actually seemed like someone had set out to deceive and this person took this very beautiful old book that was so it's like 1504, right? It's so old. It looks like it literally had like been through a war or something and chewed up by rats and all sorts of... It's just really very beat up. But one of the owners who, you know, is able to find some background information on just seemed like a real piece of work. And he pasted a modern newspaper article on the front cover of this 16th century book. And I was like, what did you do? And then inside it says like the grim literature of human skin. And he pastes all these articles about human skin books. And he like circled a price that it got at auction. And his is one of those ones that had one of those racial claims where it said that it was bound in the skin of a Moorish chieftain. And then it's not real. It was pig skin. And he also had um, tried to tie it to famous people. That's like a big red flag too, right? Where it said that it was owned by this cardinal and given to Christopher Columbus or something like that. So I feel that that was the book that had the biggest sort of clues into someone seeking to deceive, but also basically ruining the book in the process of that. Yeah, I mean, so between like people faking these for all kinds of terrible reasons and just the history of the books themselves. I mean, I think a lot of people might say, see, nothing good comes of these books bound in human skin. So why not destroy them? Why not pay respects to the dead and put the remains of someone like Mary Lynch to rest? What's the value to you of keeping these books around? Well, I think that these books are are actually controversial in that there are a lot of varying opinions about what should be done with them, and they're actually valid opinions, right? So I have my own opinion, but I know there are a lot of people who don't agree with me, and I think that that is okay. Um, 
that is that their opinions are are worth totally worth considering and mine is not the final one and that I try to include that in the book as well to show that there is there is debate there can be debate about about these books from my point of view given the research I've done into it I feel like evidence of atrocities is still evidence and that if these books were destroyed before we had the test to be able to actually find out if they're real you would have buried some books that weren't even people, right? You would have buried a, you know, 16th century book that could have been useful to some scholar because there was this dubious distinction tied to it. Now we're able to learn more about them, but who knows what else we could learn about them? You know, the the fact that they're able to persist means that we can continue to study them through our lenses and our viewpoints over time and use them to teach about important things about ethics and stuff. So the context of these items, it just builds and builds. And I feel like that has value. I think that that's useful, that it's impactful to people, not just to hear that at some point doctors did this, but to actually see the physical object and reckon with what that means. Megan Rosenblum's new book is called Dark Archives, a librarian's investigation into the science and history of books bound in human skin. We have a link in the show notes, along with more details about the Anthropodermic Book Project's work, the largest known collection of human skin books at the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia, and more. That's it for Spooky Pants this year. Have a happy Halloween. We'll be back next week with Smarty Pants. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.